Would you please take your Bible and uh, join me over in the book of Matthew? We're going to do some study this morning. I think it'd be a great blessing to you. Matthew chapter number five. Matthew chapter number five. We'll start down in verse number 13 in a second. Uh, We started our sermon series two weeks ago, and uh, we talked about God calling his people forward in faith. And uh, we went all the way back to the book of Exodus, where God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, and then he placed them between the mountains of Pi-Hiharoth and the Red Sea, and told them, as Moses was supposed to relate to them, and he did, charge the people that they go forward. And uh, we talked about how God's desire for us as Christians is to move forward. And, uh, that, and uh, that, that's his, his plan, that's his calling, and that's no different for the children of Israel than it is for our day today, that God has a calling for us to go forward. And uh, last week, I heard Pastor Hunter preached a message about going backwards in unbelief. And so I think what happened was he just said, whatever pastor preached, I'm gonna preach the opposite of it. And uh, he did that. And uh, that's true though. We have the opportunity to go forward. If we're not going forward, we're often times going backwards, but that's a contrast and a choice that every one of us are faced with on a, on a pretty regular basis, right? When it comes to the spiritual struggles that you and I as Christians, yet still as living human beings with a flesh, we face that decision all the time. Am I going to step forward in faith or am I going to go backwards in flesh? Am I going to listen to the call of God to advance the kingdom of heaven, to advance into darkness, to advance on the gates of hell? Am I going to listen to God in my spirit and move forward or in my flesh, am I going to fall backwards? And this this spiritual warfare is talked about all across the New Testament, some in the Old Testament as well. It's a battle between our flesh and our spirit. And sometimes we mistakenly give the odds of 50-50. This is really important. We're going to talk about odds today, and uh, we're not talking about betting, but just think in terms of statistical probability. What is more likely than not? And oftentimes, because there are two choices, spiritually speaking, we tend to think, well, it's a 50-50, right? Uh, As a Christian, I might do this, and I might do that. As a Christian, I might obey God when it comes to giving, or I might disobey God when it comes to giving. I, I might follow Jesus today and be in church, and you are here today, or I might not. It just kind of depends. And so oftentimes, from a uh, if you're not thinking about it a lot, I think that's where you have to kind of be. If you're not thinking about it a lot, when you look at Christianity, you think, well, there's kind of a 50-50. I've got two choices, so the odds are fairly even. But can I tell you, and this is so important, and I'm starting out the gate with some main thoughts that we need to hold hold on to and carry through. But I need to tell you, that's not the statistical probability of Christianity. Uh, According to the Bible, the odds are not even that you would walk in the spirit or that you would walk in the flesh, just depending on the day. If you're a Christian, the odds are, at least in theory, and we'll come back to that in a minute, as a Christian, the odds are that you will follow Jesus. The odds are stacked in the favor that you will naturally, once you receive Jesus Christ as Savior, when God moves inside of you, the Bible tells us that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So statistically, the odds should be that because I have a greater power in me than the power that's tempting me, I should overcome evil, right? I should overcome evil with good. And because God moved inside of me, I have the odds that I'm going to do right. Because listen, when something as big or someone as big as God moves inside of a person, a radical transformation is the natural occurrence that once you were dead, now you're alive. It's kind of like asking a living person, hey, is it more likely that you are alive right now than dead? Kind of a dumb question, right? Obviously, the odds are they're living, they're alive. And as a Christian who's been born again, the odds are in our favor that we would walk in the newness of life. The idea across the New Testament, I love the word new. I did a brief study even this morning about the idea of new. Romans chapter six, verse four tells us that we walk in newness of life because of Jesus. 
Romans chapter seven, verse six tells us that we have a newness of our own spirit, not just the Holy Spirit, but our spirit is made new. In 2 Corinthians and in Galatians chapter six, where if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Those old things are passed away. All things, you see the odds here? All things are become new. So the idea of Christianity isn't that it's even, that, hey, you know, I might be unspiritual, but I might be spiritual. You were saved to walk in the spirit, in this newness of life. I think about what Revelation says. The Bible tells us that in that final day, we will sing a new song. Everything about us is different because of Jesus. This new life and new man and newness of spirit stacks the odds in the favor of being something new how Christianity should work. There is a natural victory attached to becoming a child of God. I've said this so many times. Freedom is the birthright of a Christian. Freedom from sin, freedom from vice, freedom from addiction, freedom from lust. Those are naturally occurring things. When you become a child of God and God moves on the inside and he takes all the old and it all gets buried and dead and he makes everything new in you, there's a natural victory that happens, a natural progression of Christianity, a natural reshaping or a natural sanctification. Let me illustrate it this way, and I don't want to lose you. I think this is a heavy thought, I know. It's early in the morning still, but this is important. There's a natural progression when you get saved. Think about it like an escalator, okay? We've probably all been on an escalator before. All you have to do is get on, and it naturally takes you up. You don't have to do anything else. You don't have to fight it. There are those people, and maybe you're one of those people that try to walk up the escalator. Why would you do that? There are so few simple pleasures in life. Enjoy the fact that this machine brings you up, right? But the idea of an escalator going up is that the odds are you'll go up. You get on an escalator, it was designed to take you up, the odds are it will take you up. Unless you're one of those annoying teenagers, and we've all done this, right? Some of you are already thinking about it. The only way it doesn't take you up is if you're that annoying 15-year-old that decides to walk down the up escalator, right? But you are, thank you, Brother Ronnie. But you are, what's harder? That's much harder. You're actually putting in effort to go the wrong way. And that is exactly the case with Christianity. Christianity has a natural advancing, a natural carrying us into the image of Jesus that once you get on, once Christ moves inside of you, he begins to radically transform you and change you and carry you to that predetermined destiny of being like Jesus. So that's what I mean when I say the odds are not 50-50. If you get saved and God moves in, the odds are overwhelmingly stacked that you will become like Jesus unless you actively undo the work the escalator is trying to do in you. Unless you actively try to undo the work the Holy Spirit is doing in you, when you got on and God got in, that natural progression is to freedom and Christ-likeness and change. And unless you put the work in to do wrong, you will naturally become like Jesus. And that's such a contradictory idea of how we oftentimes think of Christianity. We think of Christianity like the uphill climb, and it's really not. It's just that we need to stop climbing downhill. It's just that we need to stop walking the wrong direction. And so the idea of an escalator is is this idea that we would naturally carry ourselves, or it would naturally carry ourselves to that destiny. So lock that illustration in your mind, because we're going to go to the text. And we're going to see Jesus use some illustrations. And he doesn't use the illustration of an escalator, right? That didn't exist in first century uh, Palestine. But he, he does use some illustrations 
that give us the same exact thought. But I want you, as we look in our text in Matthew 5, I want you to look for the parallels of the things I've been talking about. That, that it's going to naturally carry us into a particular direction. And then once you're saved, it's going to naturally carry you into victory. And so let me ask you a question. I'm going to give you a little bit of a cheat sheet. I'm going to give you a little bit of a look ahead. Let me ask you a question that will help you know where we're going and the illustration that Jesus uses. Here's my question. If someone you know had never tried salt, how would you describe it to them? Don't overthink it. If you had to give a one-word answer for what salt tastes like, you would say that salt is salty. Very original. Good. Okay. So the description of something is that it's salty. Okay, well, let's hold on to that. Now let's grab the text, now that you have that in your head, and let's notice the natural odds of being a Christian. Look at verse 13. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost its savor, or the word we would use is flavor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is henceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. You're the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill. Read the next word, please, out loud. Cannot, listen, he didn't say should not. He said cannot be hid. The odds are naturally that it can't be hid. Look at verse 15. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So this morning, I want to lay the ax to the excuse that, well, pastor, I want to be light. It's just so hard to do it. I want to be a Christian that's growing and victorious, but it's just so hard to do it. And what I'm going to show you is that Jesus said it's actually harder to not do it. It's harder to hide a city, and it's harder to make salt lose its savor than just salt being, what was the word you used? Salty. Or light being light. The natural progression of Jesus being in us is what Jesus is describing here in this passage. And I think we're going to learn some things new, and I think we're going to uh, uh, hammer some things into our heart that might could help us this week. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would guide us. Lord, I know that your desire is that your, your church and your Christians, Lord, would live victoriously, that we'd be carried by the Holy Spirit into the image of your Son, Father. I know that is your desire, and that's how you designed it. You designed this Again, Lord, forgive me. I hope it's not irreverent. This spiritual escalator that once we get on, it naturally creates Christ in us and the image of Jesus reshaped in us and formed in us. That's your desire. Should we let it happen? We let our light shine. I pray, God, that you would guide us. I pray that your spirit would work in our midst. I pray that we'd be thinking. And uh, Lord, there's a lot of engagement and a lot of uh, kind of contemplation that we're going to have to do in a few moments. But I pray that you'd give us clarity of thought. And uh, Lord, that you'd help us to lean into some of this this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Now, I don't want us to forget the text. We're going to run right back to it with all these ideas still fresh in our mind. But we're going to find in our text some things that I'm calling less than obvious, obvious truths. Okay? That's not the title of the message, but I'm going to give you four of those. I feel like this is such a familiar passage that we oftentimes miss the actual point Jesus is trying to make. And I'll illustrate that as we walk through it. We all know this passage. Many of us can quote this passage. Many of us are very familiar with this passage. But I would submit that many of us have misunderstood the entire purpose, the point Jesus is actually trying to make. And because they're really obvious truths, but at least to me, as I've read through it, they weren't as obvious as I think they would be. And so as I've walked through it, man, I'm going to help you see the obvious truths that are a little bit less obvious. So we're going to start with the very first thing he's going to teach us in our text is what I'm calling Salt's identity crisis, right? 
Salt losing its saltiness. Now, we're going to look at verse 13. And in this passage, we're going to look for a keyword. And my guess is, if you're like me, you're going to think the wrong keyword is the keyword. So follow me with me. Oh, follow with me. Matthew 15, 13. You're the salt of the earth. Now, salt is not the key word of this text. It's not at all. It's important. Jesus here is telling us that if you are saved, that you are the salt of the earth. That's what he makes you at salvation. Salt is both a preservative and a seasoning. Salt, because of its composition, can stave off infection or decay. Now, oftentimes, that's what gets preached out of this text. And that's not wrong. That's true, but that's not the point Jesus is making. And I, I, I think you'll agree with me in a few moments. Look at verse number 15, again, or verse number 13 again. You're the salt of the earth, but read the next word out loud with me. To me, and I want to show you, I really think you're going to agree with me, that's the key word. If the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. Luke 14 is a parallel passage, and Luke says it this way. Salt is good, but if salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? And that's a really logical conclusion. If salt ceases to be salty... It's good for nothing, right? If that happened, then what would the use of salt be? We just throw it out. You'd essentially be eating sand. You'd essentially be eating dirt. So just get rid of it. It's no longer what it was created to be, right? But here's the thing. What are the odds of salt not being salty? Think with me. Don't don't check out. I told you you're going to have to think in this morning's message. Think with me. This is the less than obvious, obvious truth I think we oftentimes miss in this passage. We get so caught up on what salt does, we never even pay attention to the the obvious thing staring us in our face. Let me ask you a couple questions. Have you ever bought salt that wasn't salty? Like, oh man, I thought this was going to be salty. Have you ever been to a restaurant with a restaurant shaker, right? And you throw it out there and you're like, man, what's wrong with this? It's not even salty. Have you ever had salt ever in your life that you thought, oh, that's a little bit old? It's losing its saltiness. This is less than obvious, but it's really obvious, right? That's super obvious. None of us have ever had salt that isn't salty. You know why that is? Stay with me. It is a scientific impossibility for salt to not be salty. Some of you are going to be like, well, if you dilute it with water, well, then it changes its chemical composition and it's no longer salt. Someone said, I was talking to somebody, they said, well, what if you contaminate it and put dirt in it? Well, now it just tastes like salty dirt. But the salt in the dirt it's still salty. The odds of salt not being salty are zero. Salt is salty. Yeah, again, uh, the, I'm not going to get into, I'm not a chemist, but sodium, one part sodium, one part chloride equals salty. It equals salt. Salt can't help but be salty. But listen, this is the less than obvious, obvious truth. That's the point Jesus is making. Salt is salty. It is what it is. It's not just an attribute. It is the identity of salt. Salt is, you said it, salty. There's no way around it. If it's not salty, then it's not salt. And if someone sold you unsalty salt, (laughs) they didn't sell you salt. I'll illustrate it this way. I have for you a bottle of dehydrated water. I will sell this to the top bidder after the service. And you would be like, that's really obvious. But we miss that in that text. If salt loses its saltiness, it's, it's good for nothing. The fact of the matter is, the odds are that salt is salty. 
Water is wet. Christians are Christ-like. The odds are in your favor. Salt doesn't lose its savor. That's not how it works. Now, it can, and, the, and Jesus is very careful to take the text to where men can hide their light. But the, the fact of the matter is he starts out with this very clear assertion that salt is salty. Christians naturally grow into the image of Jesus. God designed Christianity, the, the work of the Holy Spirit, to bring you through a natural progression into saving faith and then into the image of Jesus Christ to change your identity, to bring you forward, to call you to, do it, uh, to a different person if you don't resist it. If you aren't actively walking the other direction, if you aren't actively trying to break up your responsibilities, the odds are in your favor, Christian. It's not an uphill climb. It's an escalator that takes you to the image of Jesus. And so this first illustration is impossible, right? Salt doesn't lose its savor. But look at the second one. It's also impossible. Next, Jesus moves to the illustration number two of a city that cannot be hid. I hope it's starting to click. Salt cannot be unsalty. And a city, look what he says in verse 14. You're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Now, again, Jesus is speaking figuratively, we know this, of us. And so in order to understand the figurative, it's, much, uh, it's, it's a good idea to try to understand the literal that he's using. He's using an example to teach us some, some basic realities we all see and know, to teach us some spiritual realities we might not see and know. And so he says, there's this city, you've got it built up on top of this hill, and it covers the entire top of the hill, and you're down here looking up at that city, and it's shining its lights. Is there any way, what are the odds you can't see that city? Listen, we live near uh, Park Stockdale, and uh, there's the Stockdale Towers over there. You familiar with that? One of the taller buildings in Bakersfield. And we told our kids, no matter where we are, uh, as you're coming home, if you can see the Stockdale Tower, we're near home. And so when we go to the ocean and we come back from the west, oftentimes we'll see the tower, and one of my kids will be like, oh, we're almost home. Especially when they're younger, they didn't have good layout of land and roads and things. And so they knew when they saw that, that, hey, we're almost there. Now imagine April 1st comes and I walk, I can see this tower from my house, by the way. Imagine April 1st comes and I walk outside and the owner of the building somehow managed to hide the building. I'm not saying he put something in front of me like a tree or a car. I'm saying the building is right there, but now it's not. That's, that, that doesn't happen. That's not how, you can tear the building down, but you can't hide the building. You can't hide the hitty, forgive me, the city set on top of the hill. And this is that obvious, less obvious truth that we're talking about. Jesus gave us the variables. You might say, well, you know, if you stand behind a tree, then you can't see the city. That's, no, he said the city up there can't be hid. He didn't say you can't obscure your own view of it. He's saying, hey, Christianity is this city set on a hill that cannot be hid. People are going to look at you. They're going to see you. They're going to hear the words that you say. You, there's, there's no hiding. The odds of hiding a city on a hill are zero because a city on a hill is seen and light goes forth. So listen, you're salt and therefore you're salty. You're a light on a, in a city on a hill and therefore you shine. The odds are impossibly clear. You will shine. You will be salty. But let's face the reality of it. If those are the odds, the odds are zero that it can be hid and that it won't be salty. If those are the odds, then why do we see so many Christians who aren't salty and aren't light? If it's impossible 
If the natural progression Jesus is teaching us is that salt will be salty and cities will be seen, why are Christians not like Christ? Well, this moves us to our third thing we learn in the text. This is the first possibility we come across. So far, salt can't be unsalty and a city can't be hid. But now we get into the text. And this is why Jesus, he understands the variables. He knows, though, if you'll get on and get God in, then that'll naturally happen. But he also knows that we have a choice in the matter. And so for the first time ever in our passage, we're going to see there's an illogical possibility. Emphasis on illogical. Notice the illustration. It's such a good one. Look at verse 15. Neither do men. Now they can, but they shouldn't. Neither do men light a candlestick or a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. So follow the logic here. You would never build a city on top of a hill that's lit if you were trying to hide it. That'd be illogical. You would never buy salt expecting it to be anything but salty. And the fact of the matter is, logically speaking, you would never light a candle to hide its light. Why would you have lit the candle? If you had a candle and you lit it and then you covered it with a bowl so nobody could see it, then, then, then why would you do that? Men don't do that. But it is possible, albeit very illogical, to light a candle and to hide it. And that is exactly what we do. Salt is naturally salty. It's sitting on a hill is naturally seen. No one would ever light a candle and hide it, except that's exactly what we do. We're walking backwards down the escalator. No one logically, again, teenagers are excluded because logic hasn't developed in them yet. No one would logically get on an escalator that goes up to go down. That would be foolish. Equally foolish would be the lighting of a candle with the expectation that I don't want to even see light. I don't want light to come forth. Then why would you light it? Think about this, and we've discussed this before, but all of creation naturally obeys except us. The oceans do exactly what God told them to. It's in their nature. Trees create oxygen and draw in certain impurities and put out clean oxygen. They do that naturally. Salt naturally does what it's supposed to do. Light on a city naturally cannot be hid. All of creation obeys in nature except us. We're the only corner of all of creation that takes its designed purpose and rebels against it, however illogical it might be. Christians, we were saved to advance. We were created in Christ Jesus unto good works. The odds are in our favor. We got God inside, God on the escalator. We're gonna someday end up in heaven in the image, perfect image of Jesus, knowing him like we're known. This is a natural, easy follow. Just get on and stand still and let God do the work inside of you. The odds are not 50-50. You will be like him if you let your light shine. We Listen, all we have to do is let it happen. You're naturally made light by Jesus. Did you know that? You are naturally the salt of the earth. Oh, pastor, I got so many problems. Yeah, yeah, but you're salt. And if you'll let him, he'll make you more salt. Your light, oh, but my life has so many dark corners. Yeah, but he'll naturally illuminate that and that light will both shine in you and without of you. All you have to do is let the escalator do what it was designed to do. Which brings us to our final conclusion of the whole text. Look at verse 16. Read the first word out loud. Ready, begin. Let 
Can I give you the word definition? To permit, to allow, to not resist, to go with what would naturally already occur, to allow it to happen. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. So listen to me, Christians. Salt is naturally salty and light is naturally seen from a hilled city. Yes, man can obscure that light, but it will naturally flow from you if you let it. Salvation naturally takes place. When salvation comes into us, it naturally what occurs is that our faith advances. We become more like Jesus Christ. All we have to do is not walk backwards. So let me just encourage you as we close this morning. Stop rebelling against the work that God's already doing in you. Let me say this. I haven't named a single sin, and some of you already know what God's working on your heart about. Why? Because you're on the escalator. I'm not even, you know, sometimes you get people who kind of crowd you on the escalator and you kind of move forward. I don't even know what you're, you're thinking about. I don't know what sin you've been struggling with. I don't know what thing God has been calling you to give up that you won't give it up. And the fact of the matter is you're resisting. You're trying to stay on the same level the entire time. So you're walking backwards. If you just stop walking backwards and let it happen, Christianity advances in you. You become more like Jesus. You become that light that you're supposed to be. You're salty because you're salt. Listen, so whatever it is, stop obstructing the work of God in your own life. Maybe God's calling you to give or surrender or some sin or some relationship you haven't repaired. And you know what it is. And I have no idea what it is, but you're on the escalator and God keeps dragging it out of you. I'm preaching on, I don't know, mercy. And you're struggling over here because you're not right with God and you know it. It has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. Why does that happen? Because the odds are in your favor. The odds are that if you'll just let it happen, you will become more like Jesus. Listen, I've said it so many times. I'll say it again in this particular context. The mastery of the Christian life is just a mastery of surrender. Lord, you're calling me to this. All right. Lord, you want this from me. Okay. Lord, I don't have to guess what makes me a good Christian. The Holy Spirit's gonna show it to me. I don't have to guess what impurities he wants out of my life. He's gonna show it to me. I'm not like venturing. It's not like throwing a dart at a dartboard with your eyes closed. No, the Holy Spirit, when you got saved, you moved inside and it will be his forever job to change you to be like Jesus. And the sooner you let that happen, the more often it will happen. So let me ask you, what, are you draw, what is he drawing you toward? What is it you've been running the other way from? Maybe God's been working in your heart about a particular, excuse me, area of surrender that you've been resisting. Maybe you're like the apostle Paul and you are kicking against the pricks. Isn't that unique? That's such a great uh, uh, phrase. Here's the apostle Paul persecuting the church, the chiefest of sinners, running people down, hailing them to prison, trying to shut the church down. And the entire time God is working in him, working in him. And you know how that feels. Let me say this. If you don't know how that feels, you need to check your salvation. Because those who are on the escalator, they know what that feels like. They know what it's like to be convicted. They know what it's like when they sin against God and God begins to convict them and begins to do a work in their heart. And if you're here, you say, I've never felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And you need to check whether you're on the escalator because he will very naturally bring you into the image of Jesus Christ. So what are you resisting? And what are you struggling? Because your flesh doesn't want to give it up. Even right now, you're like, oh, I know I'm supposed to do that. I know I'm in disobedience. Pastor hasn't even mentioned. He mentioned like three things, but he hadn't caught mine. The Holy Spirit's already convicting you about that. Let the natural progression of your salvation have its way in your life. Allow him to make you into salt, into light, into the image, into the city that's set on a hill. It is possible if you are here this morning that you are not saved, that you've never gotten 
on the escalator, as it were. There's no change in you because there's no God in you. You're dead in trespasses and sin. The idea of somehow changing your behavior seems impossible, and you would be correct. It is. Dead people can't save themselves. They can't resurrect themselves. But Jesus came to give us newness of life. We are dead in trespasses and sin. He makes us new. Uh, And that's where this whole progression that I'm talking about that might seem so foreign to you, and the reason it's foreign to you is you haven't made the first step. You haven't trusted Christ as your savior. There is no conviction of sin. Uh, Maybe you feel bad if you get caught, but there is no real drawing when you made some kind of uh, egregious error against God. There's no relationship that's been broken. You need to check whether or not you are truly saved. But I feel like as we read this text, there's some really important truths that we oftentimes, like I said, they're obvious, but they're not obvious. That we are salt and salt is naturally salty. That we are light and naturally light shines. We are a city and it's naturally seen. All we have to do is just surrender. Let him change us. The odds are in your favor of becoming a Christian or rather becoming a Christian that is like Jesus. Let's pray.